very happy to be back with you again. As I said the last couple of times, what a marvelous privilege it is to come back to the place that really gave me my grounding. And uh, of course, in the last couple of sessions, I spent a lot of time reminiscing on Pastor Miller and all the things that he offered to me. And uh, I can't come back without remembering all those marvelous times. I remember we used to have a security team and uh, I think Bob Rice at that time was running the sound equipment back in the back and um, we had a, a color code set up so that if somebody out in the, uh, out in the parking area noticed anything suspicious, uh, he, would, he would put up a code yellow, you still got it there, code, code green, everything's good, code yellow, be alert, yeah, there we are, and code red, well, <coughs> I was, I was on the front and me and another guy, I can't remember who the guy was that was here. So we had a plan where two guys went out the back and we went out the front and we got a code red and of course it was chaos and pandemonium and people running everywhere and uh, it, there was nothing wrong at all, but it, it was fun. We, uh, we enjoyed the activity and you know, Really, in the time in which we're living, churches really need to have a security plan. Whether we like it or not, we're becoming targets. Uh, the enemy hates us. Uh, we know where that ultimately comes from. Uh, we know that we are in a spiritual war. And uh, that spiritual war, of course, from time to time, breaks out into the physical realm. And we have to be very prepared and equipped for that. I want to ask you to open your Bible. I have no neat pictures to show you. I'm old school. Uh, I still use a Bible. Uh, I believe people should bring their Bible. Um, I've been in many, many churches where they put all the verses up on the screen. In my mind, they're teaching people not to use their Bible. They're teaching people not to bring their Bible and not to learn how to turn, how to find the places, and especially how to make notes in it. My Bibles, I have to turn my Bibles over about every 10 years. The one that I've got now, not the one that I'm teaching from, this is large print so I can read it with my fading old eyes, but uh, the Bible that I do most of my study, and if I held it up and showed it to you, uh, it, it looks like some kid just did a whole bunch of scribbling all over the page because I've got lines drawn, circles drawn, notes uh, put in and everything else. And uh, I believe Bibles are made to be a workbook that we ought to uh, really use to study and understand God's Word. So we're going to start off in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to ask you to uh, join me in four different passages of Scripture. Uh, and if you want, you can just uh, put a finger in Revelation chapter 2. We want to talk this morning about the profile of a faithful local church. The last couple of sessions I had we were able to look at the profile of a faithful shepherd and what a shepherd should be both in his personal ministry, one-on-one, -on -one, which is a very important part of the ministry, and then also in his public ministry. And uh, then we talked about the uh, pastor's public ministry and uh, we brought some elements in that I'll touch on in just a moment. I always like to begin with prayer before I begin teaching the Word because, you know, after 50 years of teaching the Word, I still feel totally inadequate to do what I have to do here. 
Uh, I come in fear and trembling, not uh, out of nervousness in front of you, but in the realization that one day I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to give an account for what I say today. Uh, that to me is a very heavy burden. I take it very seriously and I realize that I'm completely incapable to do what needs to be done here this morning apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So if you would, let's just join together at the throne of grace and ask God's blessing on his word as we open it this morning. Now, Heavenly Father, earlier we took time to examine ourselves and prepare ourselves, and I pray that in each and every one of us was that willingness to expose our inner life to the light of your glory and your scrutiny, to see if there's any evil way in us, and if so, to confess that, that it might be forgiven, cleansed, and removed as an obstacle to our growth. Father, I want to offer up a prayer for this church as they're searching for the pastor that you have in mind. I pray that you will bring unanimity to the group, that there will be harmony, that there will be uh, just that union of the spirit uh, as you identify for them the man that you have chosen. Uh, in the meantime, as they wait for that to be made clear, I do pray that the church will be preparing itself uh, because we need to always evaluate whether or not we're ready for the next stage of your plan in our life. So I pray that there will be good self-examination going on, uh, spiritual motivation, eagerness for the ministry that you have in the future for this wonderfully blessed local church that has such a marvelous heritage. Father, we're living in perilous times, we know that, we realize that uh, there are going to be tests and trials ahead that will need to be met, and they can only be met in the power of your spirit and the light of your word and the strength and knowledge of the scriptures that we have before us. But Father, this is also a time of mar marvelous opportunity. Uh, people are going to be shaken. Uh, people are seeking. People are realizing the darkness that is enveloping our land and that the only hope is in the light, but many don't know how to find the light. So we pray, Father, that we will be faithful witnesses to point people always to the very beginning of the spiritual life, which is personal faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to this end, we dedicate ourselves this morning in Jesus' name, amen. When we looked at the profile of a shepherd, uh, we mentioned that when someone stands up to speak to a group, there are usually three questions in the minds of the listeners. People ask the question, number one, can I trust you? Are you a trustworthy individual? Number two, people ask, and many times it's subconscious, but the idea is still there. Do you really care about me? Do I matter to you or are you really just up there to toot your own horn or draw attention to yourself? And then finally, do you know what you're talking about? And we broke these down into the three elements that Aristotle actually identified as he evaluated teachers of his day. And I think it's a very useful metric for us. The ethos, the pathos, and the logos. The ethos has to do with character. What is your character? Is your character, character deep? Is it strong? Is it true? Is it genuine? 
And the pathos has to do with compassion. You know, when Jesus looked on the multitudes, it says that he was moved with compassion. He had a tremendous uh, care and concern and compassion for the burdens of the people and how he might meet their needs. And then, of course, we have the logos, which has to do with content. We know that Jesus is the logos of God. Uh, in him, all of the truth of God is manifested in a living person. And as we study his life and really come to grips with who he was and how he moved among the people, and I think really sometimes we have to break old stereotypes because we have a lot of times religiosity has come in and imposed on the person of Jesus Christ a character that really is probably foreign to him. Uh, I think he must have been a fun guy to be around. Uh, there's a reason that the multitudes flocked to him. They didn't flock to the religious leaders. They didn't flock to the rabbis. But there was something magnetic in his personality. And that tells me that when people came to him, they knew they were loved. They knew that they were not judged. And they knew that needs were going to be met. And those things, of course, are all a part of what the ministry is all about. But now we want to look at the profile of a faithful local church. When a local church is looking for uh, a shepherd, a pastor, uh, they're looking for someone who is capable and skilled, uh, someone that uh, will meet their needs, but it's also a time for some spurious, uh, serious self-evaluation. Just to use an example, you know, young men and women are always looking for the right mate. Uh, they have in their mind, just a young lady recently told us that she had her checklist of everything that she was looking for. And it's very easy as a church to have a checklist of what you're looking for in a pastor. But there are a few young people, and we've met a few of them as we travel around the country and around the world, who have that little extra uh, glimpse of wisdom to realize that the real goal is not so much looking at the person that's going to match my checklist, it's me being the kind of person that I want to be for the person that I'm going to find. And so with a local church, uh, we need to be asking ourselves the question, are we the kind of local assembly that the pastor we want would choose to be a pastor of? And so this can sometimes be a little bit uncomfortable, but I think it's a very important step in looking for a good shepherd. And we're going to look at a couple of passages to begin with that are not really what we want to be as a local church. Unfortunately, the examples that I'm going to give you, most people would look at it and say, now that's, that's a real local church. That's a great dynamic local church. But we're going to see what's missing or what is mixed in that ought not to be. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read these pretty rapidly, and I think they'll make the point without uh, any real analysis. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is a Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. The words to be are in italics. We're not called to be saints. We are called saints. We are separated to God by faith in Jesus Christ with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That uh, becomes quite an amazing statement when you read the rest of the book. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, he says in verse 9, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What an amazingly gifted church. I mean, this is a church that you would look at and you would say, they've got it all. Think about it. They are part of a brotherhood. Paul and Sosthenes and the saints, all a part of this wonderful spiritual brotherhood. They are sanctified, that is set apart in Christ Jesus, set apart forever from the world. They are in verse three, uh, recipients of God's grace and peace. At least God's grace and peace are offered and available to them. Always remember, by the way, uh, don't let it become commonplace to you when Paul writes his epistles is very common for him to give this uh, greeting. We need to remember the greeting is not coming from Paul. This is coming from the Heavenly Father. Grace to you and peace from God our fathers. As if as he writes, he's saying, by the way, the first thing God wants me to remind you of is that grace and peace are available to you. And then in verse 4, they were a cause for constant thanksgiving. I mean, the Apostle Paul was moved to express his gratitude to God for this congregation, even though as he moves on through the book, he's going to have a lot of correction. The whole theme of 1 Corinthians is correction of things that are wrong, correction of wrong conduct in the first seven chapters or the first six chapters, and then correction of false doctrine. In verse 5, they were rich in doctrinal knowledge and teaching. They had uh, no limitation in their uh, knowledge, their utterance of the Lord. So they apparently had some phenomenal teaching going on. They were lacking in no spiritual gifts. Uh, verse 7 tells us the first part of the verse. And then the last part of verse 7, they were living in the light of the Lord's return. You know, Paul tells us that those who live in the light of the Lord's return are going to gain a crown. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 4 and verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me, and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. So these people really had a lot of things going for them. What would keep the Corinthian church from being a model church? Well, read the rest of the book and you'll find out about 10 reasons. They were a church that had divisions. They were a church that had uh, really been uh, taken over by arrogance and selfishness. There were lawsuits going on in the church. There was sexual immorality going on in the church. There was fighting and division in the church. There were lawsuits. Uh, they were taking one another to law courts to decide questions between them, business uh, issues probably. And they had all of these things. And then, of course, they were mixed up. As you start into the seventh chapter, you find out that they were all confused about issues of marriage 
and you move on in uh, chapters uh, 8 through 10, and Paul had to explain to them the law of love, the law of expediency, the law of supreme sacrifice. They didn't understand how to make practical application of the things that they were being taught to their spiritual life. So while they had a lot of things going, and then imagine this. Imagine a church that denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a reason that 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest extended passage dealing with the resurrection. Because there were people in the church that denied that Christ had risen again. And so Paul goes through in 1 Corinthians, first a philosophical argument, a logical argument. If Christ is not risen, then we're not going to be raised. And that means that we're dead in our sins. And then he goes into doctrinal arguments to establish the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he gets into chapter 16, where he's just kind of hammering them to take the things that he had taught and apply it in their lives. And I want you to just uh, turn with me. I hadn't planned on doing this, but I think it might be a good exercise. If you go to 1 Corinthians 16, after all of his rebuke, after all of his correction, after all of the uh, very clear instruction that he gives them, he has five commands that he just... Uh, kind of wraps out in rapid order, kind of like a commander uh, as he's speaking to the troops in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. And uh, my family, we actually took this as uh, more or less the motto of our family while we were over in Australia, because I think it has so much to say in such a short time. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, literally, the Greek says, act like men. We can't say that anymore, of course, because we live in an age that can't even figure out what men and women are. So. Isn't it funny how all of a sudden when the Supreme Court came down with his ruling, everybody knows who women are? Isn't that weird? Strange. Very strange. And of course, if you don't know, you might do a little research on the row of the Roe Wade decision because she actually lied about the whole situation that brought the case uh, to court in the first place. She claimed that she had been gang raped and was desperate to get an abortion and couldn't find an abortion clinic. And so the whole decision was, well, we need abortion clinics on every corner. Well, later she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're aware of that. And she uh, came clean and uh, made it very clear that she had lied about the whole thing. It was all uh, just a part of her mixed up mindset. She was involved in uh, alcoholism, abusive relationships and things like that. And uh, so you can do a little research on that. Uh, that's a rabbit trail. We killed the rabbit, so let's come back. Watch, stand fast, fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. What a marvelous summary of the Christian life. Number one, be vigilant. Why? Because the enemy wants to drag you down. You may think you're a nobody. You may think you're not important. I want to tell you, if you're a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, you are a gifted member of the body of Christ. God has a plan for your life. He wants to accomplish eternal things through you, things for which he'll give you reward in eternity, and Satan wants to drag you down. It's not just the so-called big shots. It's not just the pastor, the missionary, the evangelist. It's the tiniest member of the body of Christ. 
that the enemy will constantly seek to drag down. So be vigilant. Stand fast. If you're alert, you can hold your ground. Uh, I probably shouldn't bring things like this into the pulpit, but I happen to take great delight in them. I saw a guy in, uh, this was in Europe, and uh, he was being harassed by one of the uh, mass migrants that had flooded into the country, and he kept telling the guy, back off, back off, and the guy just kept coming and coming, and finally he gave him one last warning, and then he gave him a haymaker to the right cheek and just knocked him out cold, and I just thought that was absolutely marvelous. He was being brave. He was acting like a man. He was protecting his home. Uh, don't ever let anyone tell you in this crazy mixed up time that Christians should be passive. If you're passive, you're gonna be fodder for the beast. You're gonna be chewed up and you're gonna be spit out. Be strong, be brave, be vigilant. But notice, let everything that you do be done in love. Do you know what makes great warriors? What makes great warriors is not hate. The greatest warriors are not those who fight because they hate what they're fighting against. They're the ones who fight because they love what's behind them. They're protecting something precious. They're protecting what they love and therefore they fight with ferocity because they will defend to the utmost of their strength and the end of their life that which they're protecting. We ought always to be that kind of people. From here to Revelation chapter 2, and again, these are just really introductory, and my introductions sometimes take up my whole hour, but I will try not to do that. We move from the Corinthian church, and again, a richly gifted, blessed church, but there were things in the church that should not have been there. The, the problems in the Corinthian church reveal the deficiency in their true understanding of God's word. So in Revelation chapter two, we come to a different church here. We've got the church of Ephesus and our scripture reading was from the book of Ephesus. And I'll have more to say about that book in just a moment. But he says to the angel, angel being the messenger, the pastor, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the seven stars of the seven churches, he walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You have persevered and have patience. You have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Uh, if you just look at these qualifications up through verse three, what do we notice about this church? Well, number one, they're a hardworking church. They are working hard for the Lord and for his word. At the second part of uh, verse two, they were enduring church. They had been through persecution. They had faced opposition. They had had hostility thrown at them and they endured it. And the last part of verse two tells us not only that, they were aware not only of the danger of the attack from outside, they were aware of the danger of infiltration. You know, one of the most subtle ways that Satan can destroy a church is to infiltrate the church. He'll infiltrate the church with wolves, 
that are in sheep's clothing and they look great and they seem motivated and they seem gifted. And then little by little, they begin to eat away at the progress of the church and the people in the church. And so these people not only were a hardworking and enduring church, they were a very discerning church. They were able to spot these phonies that came into the church. They had endured hardship. They had not become weary. There are actually three different Greek words that are used here for their hard work, works, labor, and labored. The last one is bastadzo, and it means to carry a heavy load. So this church had so much to commend it, and you would look at it and say, now there is an ideal church, but they're really not. And the reason they're not is, as he goes on to say, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You know, I tremble every time I read this because, as I said, I know that each one of us, you and I, are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to give an account for our life. And when I look at these passages, as he evaluates these churches, and he can say so many good things about them, and then say, but there's a problem. And I have no doubt that that's going to come up at the Bema Seat of Christ. And I often wonder how I'll be able to keep my trembling legs from collapsing as he says to me, you did this, you did this, you did this, but there's a problem. Right then, if I could, I'd have a heart attack, but I'll be in a resurrection body, so that's not going to happen. I have this against you, he says, that you have left. The word left would better be translated forsaken. You have forsaken your first love. Uh, he tells them the solution to this in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent and do the first works, or I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And by the way, the removal of the lampstand uh, is really a fearful warning. It is the warning that the church will cease to exist. The church will cease to be a light in its uh, area, in its region, uh, in its community. Uh, because they have failed to respond to his correction. Once again, marvelous church, many wonderful gifts. What was wrong with it? They had forsaken their first love. Uh, one of the reasons I find this so interesting, and I mentioned Ephesians earlier, is that Paul commends the Ephesian church in the book of Ephesians. Do you remember what he commends them for? at the very beginning. I'm not going to turn to it, but Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, he praises them for their strong love for all the saints. A lot of people, when they read the statement that you have forsaken your first love, they ask the question, well, does this mean love for Christ or does this mean love for fellow believers? You'll even find different commentators and scholars that'll argue about it and some say it's love for Christ, and some say it's love for the church. And if you were to ask me, I would say, yes, it is, both. Because you can't have one without the other. You'll never have a local church that shows a true and genuine love for fellow believers unless there is a genuine love in that church for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this love is not restrictive. I've known churches where there was a great deal of love shown to the upper crust. You know, those are the people that can give a lot, and we show uh, special attention to them, and we shower them with praise, and so on and so forth. That's not the way the church is to function. 
a real church that is expressing the love of Christ is going to have a love for each and every member. And there, everyone that comes to that church is going to have a very genuine sense that they are loved, not just from the pulpit, but from the members of that group. This doesn't mean we have to get all flowery. It doesn't mean that we need to get maudlin and sentimental and cry on each other's shoulder. Uh, but it does mean that we have a genuine care and compassion, particularly for those who are going through difficult times. I don't know how it is right here in this group, but I know in our little church up in uh, Prescott, there are many, many people going through really difficult times right now. People are having financial difficulties. People are having physical health problems. And those people need a little bit of special care and special attention. You know, a shepherd shepherds a flock. I've told you before, I know I'm not going to go into it in a long, windy story. When I was a kid, I had to shepherd sheep. And one of the main things, and whether it was sheep or horses, cattle, whatever, one of the main things that my dad drilled into my head about a stockman is that you're specifically alert to any animal that's ailing. You look for the ones that are faltering. You look for the ones that are losing weight. You look for the ones who are not eating. You look for the ones who are off by themselves. I can well remember being with my dad when I was probably nine years old, maybe eight years old, and uh, we looked far across the uh, ranch land where I grew up, and there was a herd of cattle over there. And he said, what do you notice about those cattle? I said, well, I had pretty sharp eyes back then. I counted them, and I said, there's so many of them. He said, that's good. What else do you notice? Well, they're grazing. What else do you notice? Well, I didn't notice. So then he asked me, he said, do you see that one of them is separate from the group? It's off by itself. Do you notice that the others are grazing and that one's not? He could tell at a half mile or a mile away that that animal was sick. And it was a point just designed to drive into my mind. You look for the ones that are struggling. You look for the ones that are having difficulty. And that's the kind of local church that we want to have. The Ephesian church started out uh, being very loving to all the saints. And between the time that they were founded and the time John wrote the book of Revelation, they had failed. So what do we want to do? We want to look at the model church. And to do that, we need to look at two passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 gives us our first glimpse into a model church. Now here's the amazing thing about the Thessalonian church. When the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, these people had only come to Christ probably about two months previous. If you stretched it to its furthest possible length, maybe three months. The scriptures tell us, and you can go back and look this up in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul came into the area. He began to minister in the synagogues. The synagogues kicked him out. He began ministering among the Gentiles. He was there for about three weeks, and they ran him out of town. He moved on from there, and even if we stretch it and say that he was there for six weeks, uh, say three weeks in the synagogue and then three weeks with the Gentile converts, it wasn't very long after he left there that he sent Timothy back to them and he wrote 1 Thessalonians. So these people have not been believers for very long. 
But I want to look at the first 10 verses, and if you'll just bear with me, I'm going to read through the whole chapter, and then I'm going to come back and hit five things. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Now, if you want to know if you're one of the elect, this is really a good way to know it. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Imagine putting a missionary out of work. Paul didn't have to do anything because the church was doing it all. Verse 9, for they themselves, that is the people who are impacted by your witness, declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I mentioned the issue of election. Do you know when you become elect? You become elect the day that you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And anyone can say, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I take, take people at their word. Uh, if people tell me that they have trusted Christ as their Savior, I have no reason to question their faith. But if I want to look at a person and say, now there I can tell that that person is a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to look for some of the things that the Apostle Paul mentions here. And I just want to hit on five of them. Number one, their spiritual equilibrium. Spiritual equilibrium or spiritual balance. You notice that he says in verse 3 that they had a work of faith, a labor of love, and a patience of hope. Do you know what we have in these words? Ethos, pathos, and logos. It's very interesting. Faith is actually the logos because faith is the content of that which we believe. It is that which gives us character as we are conformed to the character of Christ. And then we have hope. And what is hope? Hope is pathos. Why? Because we live in a hopeless world. We live among people who are lost. We live among people who are uh, struggling and, and staggering through life. People who are constantly inflicting both physical, emotional, and spiritual wounds on themselves because of the bad decisions that they make. And they don't have the hope that we have. And they look at the darkness of our world and they are terrified. And we have the only answer. We have hope. And our hope, our confidence that Jesus Christ controls history and that Jesus Christ is coming again is something that gives us a desire to share that truth with others and bring them into that confidence. So it's a pathos. Love, of course, 
is ethos because love takes character. It takes a great deal of character to love as Christ loved. We cannot produce the love of Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that the love of Christ compels us. He's talking about him and his missionary team. Would that he could be saying it about all of us. The love of Christ compels us because we judge that if Christ died for all, then all died. What does he mean by that? Well, not only that all died in Adam, when Adam sinned, wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Yes, it's true that all were spiritually dead, but it means something else. And it means something extremely important. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took the death of every single member of the human race and in the mind of God, all men died and shared in his death potentially. In other words, every member of the human race has the potential of entering eternal life by simple childlike faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5.15 and he says, And he died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for them. So the idea is that the love of Christ is driving us forward in life and it becomes a compelling force. So they had spiritual equilibrium, faith, hope, and love. Secondly, in verse 4 and 5, their hunger for the Word of God. When the Word of God came to these people, it wasn't just a message that they heard and thought was nice. It wasn't just a flowery sermon. It wasn't just something that gave them a rosy feeling. It was something that gripped them to the very core of their being. Their hunger was a hunger that grabbed hold of the Word of God, not only in eagerness to hear, but in a transformed life. My friends, if you hear the Word of God taught often or irregularly, and it doesn't change your life, your spiritual hunger is a facade. True spiritual hunger digests metabolizes and utilizes the Word of God in life. And that's why we're here. We're here this morning not just to gather together to praise our Lord in singing, not just to pray together, not just to give. We're here to be transformed. I don't want to walk out of this building the same person that walked in. I want every single class that I hear or that I teach to be something that not just has an impact on your soul, but something that changes my life. And so the Word of God was changing their lives, and they were being transformed. Third, in verses 6 and 7, notice that they became followers, and that led to them being leaders. They became followers of Paul and his team because they received the Word of God in affliction with joy, but they became examples. What is it that makes leaders good followers? Show me a good follower. Show me a person who's attentive to what they're being taught in any field of life. Show me someone who is meticulous in taking what they've learned and trying to implement it and apply it in their life. Someone who stays humble, someone who's always willing to be corrected and always willing to be shown where they can do better, that person is going to be a leader somewhere along the line in life. And so they moved through that transition in, in what? Six weeks to three months max. 
I mean, this is a whole church. A whole church that Paul is able to write, not just in his opinion, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, this is the kind of group you guys are. I find this amazing. And then in verses 8 and 9, they're witness to the surrounding areas. They had an impact in Macedonia and Achaia and beyond, where the Apostle Paul said, you've done us out of a job. Your faith has had such a tremendous impact on those areas, we don't even need to say anything because they are reporting to us the impact. You know, impact is an important thing. We start out and we let the Word of God impact us. And then we have a sphere of influence. And as the Word of God transforms us, it begins to have an impact on those around us our own personal private little mission field, our little six square feet of ground that we are to hold for the Lord on this earth. And as we continue to have that effect and as we affect others and they begin to affect others, the ripples go out like a pebble thrown into a little pool and pretty soon, oftentimes totally unknown to people. I think of Arthur Stace in Australia. I don't know if you're aware of this, his story. They called him Mr. Eternity. And he was a skid row bum who walked by a church one Sunday morning and there was an Irish evangelist that was preaching from the book of Isaiah and he kept hammering on the word eternity, eternity. And he said, if only I could just brand eternity into the hearts and the souls of people. And Arthur Stace came to Christ that day. And as he walked outside, he reached in his old uh, shabby coat pocket and pulled out a broken piece of chalk. And he bent down and he wrote the word eternity. And he began a ministry. And he would pray every day, asking God, where would you have me to go? And he began writing eternity on the sidewalks. And all of Sydney, Australia was uh, asking the question, who is this mystery eternity? And as the story unfolds over time, we find that there were multitudes of people. He didn't just write. He would walk up to people. How's this for a way to witness? He would walk up to people, you know, a little shabby old man, you're not gonna brush him off. And he'd say, pardon me, may I ask you a question? Well, of course you'd say, sure. And he would say, do you know where you'll spend eternity? And then he'd turn and walk away. And people, thought he was crazy. But later we found that mission leaders, pastors of churches, Christian workers all over the world who had traveled through Sydney had found Christ because of that strange little man writing eternity on the sidewalk and asking people a question, do you know where you'll spend eternity? He didn't even know, he was not aware of the ripples that went out from his life until almost the end of his life. And when he was finally told the number, the multitude of people that had come to Christ and scattered out and started ministries all over the world, he broke down and cried. He said, I thought my life had been lived in vain. I thought that I had had no effect at all only to find as little and insignificant as he was, he had impacted the whole world. Well, this is the kind of church that we have here in Thessalonica. So I would encourage you, maybe read through 
particularly 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 2 Thessalonians is dealing more with the second coming and judgment, but read through 1 Thessalonians and let it challenge you. And then one more passage, if you'll bear with me for just a few more minutes. 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. Turn with me just quickly to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to use this passage because I want to turn our attention away from uh, just focusing on the church as a whole, uh, which we've done here with uh, the Thessalonian church. I want to bring it down to a personal level. What about me? What kind of person should I be? We can all ask ourselves the question, I'm sure many of you remember Gary Horton saying this often, if every American was just like me, what kind of America would America be? Well, we can ask the same in a local church. If every church member here was just like me, what kind of a church would we have? And so we want to look at the individual in Hebrews chapter 10, and we want to notice a few things. And I'm going to start in verse 19. Once again, I'll read straight through, and then I'll come back and hit the high points. Therefore, brethren, by the way, uh, I gave my Friday evening uh, study group a uh, challenge. We're going through the book of Hebrews. And I said, go through the book of Hebrews and find every time it says, therefore. Because whenever he says, therefore, I personally am convinced Paul wrote the book of Hebrews for a large number of reasons. But at any rate, whenever he says, therefore, he's coming to a conclusion. And if you go back in the previous context and look at what he's talking about, and then you hit the therefore and look at what he says after, you'll understand why he's coming to this conclusion. So he's coming to a conclusion after 10 chapters of the book that is a very important conclusion. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, it's very hard to keep a congregation together when a church loses its pastor. People begin to drift. People begin to move on. People miss the continuity. People miss the uh, consistent teaching, whatever it is. It's, it's an easy time to leave. Don't fall prey to that. This is a time of refining, a time of testing, and a very important time for individuals as well as for the church. All right, what do we see of the individuals in this church in Hebrews 10. Never forget that every local church is the sum total of the individual members. If we're gonna have a strong church, we have to have strong, balanced individuals in the church. And the first thing I want you to notice is that they are a spiritually bold people. He talks about the boldness that comes because of something they know. That boldness that he mentions in verse 19 and 20 is a boldness that comes from knowing what Christ is doing now. 
You know, you can ask a lot of Christians, what did Christ do when He came? And they can tell you, He lived such and such a life. He worked miracles, healed the sick, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind, showed compassion to the poor, organized the disciples, trained them, went to the cross, was crucified, buried, rose again, and ascended into the presence of the Father. That's all great. The question is, what is He doing now? Do we understand His present session? Do we understand his ministry at the right hand of the Father? Because if we don't understand what he's doing now, we're not going to understand what we need to be doing now. He inaugurated a new dispensation. He inaugurated what the Apostle Paul called the dispensation of the grace of God, the most glorious time to be alive throughout all of history. I know, and I share this with you, I look forward to the time when Christ returns, establishes his kingdom, there is peace and justice on the earth. It's going to be a glorious time, but I want to tell you something. There is something about this time that is unlike any other time of history. Right here, right now, where we live. Let's not waste it. We have things that need to be done, things we need to be focused on, and they all relate to what is Jesus Christ doing in his high priestly ministry. Now, if you ask me, and I could teach you all about it in a year or so, but if you want to read about it, read the book of Ephesians and the book of Hebrews. The book of Ephesians is all about Christ ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father and the unique age in which we live called the church age and the spiritual resources that have been given to us so that we can have magnificent impact on the world around us. Again, I want to caution you. Don't think you're insignificant. If you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a new creature in Christ indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And I want you to get this last part. God has called you for nothing less than historical impact. God has called you as an individual believer for nothing less than historical impact. And be like Arthur states, you don't have to see it. All you have to do is find something you can do that will spread the message God will take care of the rest so that when you stand in his presence and he says, here are the people who came to me through you or here are the people who have been edified through you and here is one person you impacted who impacted 10, who impacted 100, who impacted 1,000. It's going to be amazing. All we have to do is just live by faith one day at a time one day at a time. So they were a bold group, but they also oriented to their three ministries. And you'll notice the three ministries. They're found in verse 21, 22, and 23. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 22, 23, and 24. In verse 22, he talks about our priesthood. Let us draw near. Every believer is a priest. If you want to know what can I do, how can I change history, I'm going to give it to you in three easy steps. Number one, realize that you are a priest before God. What is the role of a believer priest? To pray, to intercede on behalf of others, and you'll know how well you're doing in your ministry by evaluating this question. For whom do I pray the most? Who do I spend the most time on? Me or others? 
That's the answer right there. Some of us think God is Santa Claus. Dear God, gimme, 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 gimme. And that's the sum total of our prayer. Could I suggest to you that the more you learn to pray for others struggling and others in need, and the less you pray for yourself, you will find that God starts taking care of your problems because He wants you to be concerned about the problems of other people. Priesthood. We need to be entering the throne room of God. We need to be coming in boldly, and we need to be making requests powerfully because they're based on Scripture. Father, you have said in your word, now I want to see this fulfilled for my friend, for my neighbor, for these people who are around me. Priesthood. Don't forget your priesthood. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9, that every child of God is a priest. Secondly, in verse 23, their ambassadorship. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What does this mean? The word hold fast means to hold in a firm and mighty grasp. And what it means is that you are willing to proclaim the claims of Christ to the world around you, obviously waiting for the right time and the right place. We don't just go out there blathering 24 hours a day. We, we let the Spirit of God lead us to the right person, to the right place. But when you present the claims of Christ, you're going to be challenged. Hold fast to those claims. Don't waver. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to change. We are going to hold fast to the claims. And it's very simple. Arthur Stace used the word eternity. Here's one you can use. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And if you can make that clear to people, you've done your job. Be strong in your ambassadorship. Priesthood is directed toward God. Ambassadorship is directed toward the unsaved. And then we come down to verse 24 and we find ministry. And the ministry is considering one another. Uh, Joel just mentioned that uh, you guys were doing some study on the one another commands. Let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works. That word stir up is an interesting word. It's a word that literally means to create friction, heat, and sparks. It might not always be comfortable. It might sometimes create a little bit of uh, reaction, let's say. Why? Because you want to be the kind of person that other people can't be around and be comfortable if they're a slugger. For those of you who know Gary Horton, he's one of the most stimulating people that I know as far as stirring up. He is a stirrer from the beginning, and he still is. He's getting old, and he's getting beat down and the guy has poured out his life. But I'll tell you one thing, you couldn't be around Gary and be comfortable if you're apathetic. You have to be on fire. And that's the way we want to be. We want to be lighting fires in the souls of other believers, creating in them a desire to be more dedicated, more faithful, and more committed. So this is ministry. So here you are, priesthood, verse 22, ambassadorship, verse 23, ministry, verse 24. And before I move on from those three, have you noticed that in verse 22, it's faith, verse 23, hope, and verse 24, love. Isn't that amazing? The same thing we saw of the equilibrium of the saints 
in Thessalonica come in here. And by the way, this is kind of a little hint that the same guy that wrote 1 Corinthians 13, 13 wrote the book. Do you know why? Because there are about 10 places through Paul's epistles. If you search carefully, you'll find faith, hope, and love. Not always in the same order. Sometimes it's faith, love, and hope. Always faith comes first. I find this fascinating because we're back to ethos, pathos, and logos. It's absolutely amazing. Faith, hope, and love. And then he says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together and the last quality of this marvelous church. Actually, the Hebrews that he's writing to were not living up to these. This is the ideal that he's setting in front of them. So we can't say that the uh, believers that he's writing to uh, were really exhibiting these things, but this is what he was trying to challenge them to. They are steadfastly dedicated to the local church. They do not cut and run when things get difficult. Folks, I've been around a long time. I've been in a lot of churches, and I've seen how it goes. Church splits, church fights, church people running. Why? Because things got difficult. The pastor said something I didn't like. If I left Westside Bible Church the first time John Miller said something I didn't like, I would have left the night I walked in. <laughs> because it was over in that building and it was in the very beginning and I walked in and I was all tied up and tangled up in legalism and you know, God gives to pastors a real perceptiveness they see things that you don't see when you look at other people. And I remember him leaning on the pulpit saying, if you walked in here tonight as a legalist, you're lower than a snake. <laughs> and then he went on. I mean, he expounded as he had the ability to do. And I was so mad, I didn't know whether to get up and walk out or try to walk up and punch him. He'd have probably shot me. But I did the right thing. You know what I did? I'll never forget it, folks. It, I've got two big, big days in my life. The day I came to Jesus Christ and the day I walked in here and as far as spiritual growth. And I'll tell you why. Because I did the right thing. I walked up and I said, could I talk to you for a moment? And we went in his little office in the other building. And I said, you said some things tonight that were really hitting me right across the face. And he said, oh, really? Of course, he knew all about it. He read me like a book when I walked in the door. But you know what he did? He did something that I'll never forget. He began to expound to me on the grace of God. No legalist understands the grace of God. The grace of God gives you a compassion, it gives you a love, it gives you a flexibility, it gives you an acceptance of other people, it frees you from a judgmental attitude, and it just makes life so wonderful to understand the grace of God. And as I continued to come to classes and I saw the grace of God developed in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I understand the fullness of his work on the cross, well, if I don't get back to Hebrews 10, 25, we'll never get back, but not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. I want to close with this. The day approaching for them was 70 AD. 
70 AD was one of the most awful times in all of human history. Terrible, terrible time. Bloodshed, slaughter, slavery, in just unbelievable magnitude. Could I suggest to you that there are about three times in all of human history that compare the time you're in right now? The first, I would say, is the Tower of Babel. A time when the whole world was deceived, the whole world was led into activities and practices that were contrary to the plan and purpose and word of God, and as a result, they all became slaves. We are in a time, and I believe it's because the stage has been set for the tribulation period, which tells me that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church is near, but I don't know how near, and no one does. But I do know this. I want to be among those who stand firm in this time. I want to be among those who do not lose faith, do not cut and run, don't turn their back to the enemy, don't give up. We need to stand firm. And you know what? One thing I know, none of us has the strength to stand firm unless we stand together. It takes, doesn't take a village like Hillary said. It takes a local church. It takes a local church of believers who love one another, support one another, pray for one another, work together, encourage one another, and impact their world for Christ. My prayer is you'll be that kind of church. Let's close in prayer. I'm going to start off in prayer, and then uh, I believe Joel and uh, Maria are going to uh, come in and deal with a couple of things, and then I'll finish off. So if you would, let us, let us boldly approach the throne of grace. Father in heaven, we come into your presence standing firm, standing strong, standing sure. Why? Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and what he's done. So, fathers, we lift these requests up before you. We pray that they will be received in the confidence and assurance with which they're given. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the clarity of your word that as we become more effective as disciples, we will develop our egos. Have a great understanding of your word Christ. Father, we pray for the future of our church and our transition. We know that you have a perfect time in which we will understand and know as you reveal who that individual is. Father, we pray that you, we will stay focused and glorify you in the process of transition. We pray these things in your son. Father God, we come before you with bold confidence that you've given us gifts to support one another, to bring you glory, Father, that we would share your good word, the gospel, to everyone around us. Father, remind us that in your time, you're going to bring in the right man at the right time. 
Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us. We pray that we would become overcomers, that you would lead us to the victory over our fears, to be able to share the good news. We ask these things in your son's name. Now, Father, as we dismiss, we just pray that you will bless us as we go, guard us in our ways. Father, we lift up our nation. It is broken. It is rebellious. Uh, it is antagonistic to everything that is of you. But Father, in this nation are many, many men and women, boys and girls that love you, love your word. And for their sakes, we pray for your mercy. We do pray that justice will be restored to this nation. Uh, we know that only you can bring this to pass. Father, for this local church, how I pray that you will just hold them together, carry them in your arms as a shepherd carries his flock. We pray that at the right time you will bring the man to this place that will um, just embrace this congregation in the love and truth that's in Christ. And we just ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.